Hi, everyone. This is the 20th episode of Mind Your Body, and I am so excited. I started working on this podcast back in January, and we officially launched in April 2017. And I'm just delighted to say that we are averaging over a thousand listens per month. Obviously, I couldn't have gotten this far without my wonderful, generous guests. And of course, you, the people who listen to the podcast. I just really want to thank you all and take a minute to really show my appreciation for continuing to come back and continuing to listen. And for those of you who I've gotten to know so far, it's just been a pleasure hearing where you are in the world and what you do and what you're interested in learning about. And if we haven't connected yet, I look forward to connecting with you sometime in the future. So I'm looking forward to the next 20 episodes. And for now, to celebrate, I'm going to do another giveaway. So last month, I did an Elastoblast giveaway. And this month, thank you to Donna Newman-Bluestein, who was featured in last episode, episode 19. I'm going to give away a free Octoband. If you're interested in hearing the details of this contest, visit www.mindyourbodydmt.com and you will find all the details there. And uh, this one's going to be shorter. It's just going to be two weeks long. So um, just make sure you check out the details really soon because the contest is going to end on the 24th of November, the day after Thanksgiving. It's real simple. It's going to be a really, really simple contest. Way simpler than leaving a review. All right. So let's just jump into today's episode featuring Kalila Homan talking about sensation and emotion from a neurobiological perspective. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. Well, I just wanted to thank you for coming on to the podcast and sharing with us what you know about the mind-body connection, and I know that you've done a lot of research in this area, but before we get into that, I'd like to have you introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Kalila Homan, and I'm talking to you from Austin, Texas. I have a private practice and um, I'm also working right now in a couple of different alternate route training programs, um, including with Antioch University. And can you kind of explain your focus or what you've been focusing on and for the majority of your career? I know it's, I think you Mm -hmm. call it embodied neurobiology, right? Yeah, that's the name of the training program, and it's the best description I could come up with. But I would say there is sort of a unifying theme in all of my work throughout my private practice and then any teaching that I do. Um, I I love that dance therapy really helps people work uh, directly with their own bodies and develop their own bodies and their relationship to their own bodies as a healing resource for themselves that they can access throughout their lives. And to me, um, the fact that we have this um, capacity for a healing relationship within ourselves that just really needs awareness to be activated is a very um, kind of potent idea. 
And it comes to life in so many different ways in different contexts with with, uh, anybody I've ever worked with, um, groups, teaching. I think that's the heart of it is that we have this um, training that allows us to help people develop a more um, complex and and um, grounded and versatile relationship with their own bodies. So, you know, after, in a sense, after you learn it, it's free and it's yours. And, you know, you don't have to go anywhere for more, um, to pay more money. It's just um, something that you then own within yourself, Mm -hmm. which is pretty empowering. Yeah, absolutely. So how would you define or describe what being embodied and then um, embodied neurobiology. Could you break down those concepts? Being embodied, I think, means um, having the capacity to notice what you're experiencing on a physiological level. So, for example, right now I can, I am sitting on the floor, but when I bring my awareness to my pelvis making contact with the floor and to my breath moving through my body, which are also um, approaches shared by mindfulness practice, for example, my experience shifts automatically. And within dance therapy, we also have both the capacity to bring the mind to the body as it's still, so that you bring your mind inside your body in a sense, but you also have the capacity to bring your mind to your body as it's moving. And all of life, all of our lives happen in the context of moving interactions with other people. So the more we notice um, how we're impacting and how we're experiencing those on a body level, for example, when I walk into a room, do I march right in, assume my place in this circle and, um, you know, connect in the ways that feel really um, vital to me? Do I assume that I have that right? That's a very embodied experience, Uh, going in, claiming your space, engaging with vitality in the ways that you want to. And other people need more time to engage. Perhaps they need to walk in a little bit more slowly, really assess the environment, figure out where in the room feels like a place that they'd like to be Maybe they need more time. They, the more somebody knows about their own way of being in their bodies, uh, the more they can navigate consciously the world around them in a way that makes sense to them and that is vital and flexible. Um, if you know that you're going to have a challenge um, and that you tend to respond to that challenge. Some people, for example, um, if something comes up, they might um, get more and more activated and talk more and more. And the more they talk, the less connected they feel. But it isn't until they reflect on it later, maybe with support to see, oh, gosh, you know, the more frantic I felt, the more I moved, the less I felt connected. Like maybe if I slowed down I might feel like the other people are with me more. Just a small example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think it has a lot of daily applications. Um, well, it does. It's just noticing them and figuring out how to um, use that awareness to support yourself to grow in the ways that you want to. Yeah, I often think of 
that as being controlled by your body and your emotions and your thoughts, which, you know, are all intertwined mm. versus having more yeah. control over your entire neurobiology, right. neurophysiology. Right. That's an interesting point. Um, I worked with a young woman with um, pretty extreme depression. Um, she had come from a kind of an overachieving high school transition to a college out of state and got very overwhelmed um, and then kind of retreated into herself with a lot of different um, deflecting behaviors. And by the time we started working together, her experience of herself was, she said, as if she were under a hundred blankets and she just had both a depressed vitality and a depressed experience of herself. And amazingly, she had had some training um, early on in her life in dance that she was able to then begin to access um, as a way to move with that embodied sense in a, in a, a different way. For example, pushing those blankets up off her took some strength and felt good to her. And she could use the floor as a solid uh, foundation for that pushing to start. It was just a, a very kind of delicate dynamic and, and interesting process to watch her engage with her embodied experience of her own depression to find some new solutions um, to feeling more alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then how do you relate all of this, the process of becoming embodied or being embodied to neurobiology? Mm-hmm. Well, I like to imagine the brain and the spine as having a large root system. And the root system goes, and it, this is actually a literal reality, is that the nerves then go to every single part of the body. And then the information flow comes from the body um, and the environment into the body and into the brain through the senses and that includes the kinesthetic proprioceptive sense when we're like sitting on the floor, the fact that we can feel it. The information is coming from our bodies to our brains. And then there's a two-way channel. Of course, it's also coming back out from our brains to our bodies as we move both voluntarily and involuntarily. So um, it's just an incredibly intricate and beautiful system, and they are not separate. They are literally um, interwoven on a biochemical, molecular, structural level. The information flow is never one directional. It's always um, a process. I I really like Daniel Siegel's definition of mind as um, an embodied and relational flow of energy and information. It's embodied and relational. Our minds are embodied and relational. We are not, even our minds aren't working solo. They're in collaboration. You and I are having a dialogue and that flow and energy exchange is what's creating the reality that we're kind of simultaneously involved in, right? Mm -hmm. Would you say that every thought has a coexisting sensation, um, a coexisting action, even if it's not like a, an obvious movement. Um, every emotion has a coexisting thought and so on and so forth. It certainly has a coexisting physiological reality. 
So a thought is um, a movement in the brain, and then it may extend into an action that then goes beyond the brain. Um, once it's an emotion, it already exists in the body because emotion is kind of a complex uh, molecular phenomena. It's not just in the mind. Um, uh, Damasio, really, Antonio Damasio, who wrote a number of books, but one of the ones I'm thinking of right now is Self Comes to Mind. And his concept of emotion really is that um, our experience of emotion is actually the mind's interpretation of what's happening in the body. So, for example, when we think of the emotion of sadness, there's a really different physiological state. If we feel into that sadness, we drop into it, we can feel the physiology of it. Contrast that with the physiology of anger or rage the heat of it, the um, intensity of it, the mm, rhythm of it. They're very different. And they're also different um, physiologically on a, both a biochemical level um, and then also a neurological level. And we have a number of um, kind of channels of information flow, one of which uh, comes to mind that also has a, a strong physiological biochemical overlay is the HPA axis, something that many people might have heard about, but it's um, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. So um, our own in our own brains, we have the hypothalamus and the pituitary glands, but they are really linked also to um, our adrenals, which are on top of our kidneys. And when we uh, get stressed, there needs to be a communication from the brain to the body to help the uh, being uh, respond to that stress. So it's an activating response. When something is stressful, we need to figure out how to respond to that. So our energy spikes and you can feel that adrenaline rush. You know, ideally, as soon as the stressor is resolved, the action has been taken, those levels drop back to a normal kind of a, a good equilibrium. Um, when there is chronic stress and there's chronic overactivation, there's a difficulty in that uh, recalibration process. So you might have somebody after a period of chronic stress being unable to access the activation that's normal and, and finding themselves in just a complete state of burnout for, for too long. Would you compare that to depression? Yeah, it could result in that, sure. Um, it, there And there's a depression to the physiology of not being able to access the energy and adrenaline when you need it. It's a good way of thinking of it. Is that what you were referring to just a few minutes ago when you are talking about the set, uh, physiology of sadness? Mm, well, it's interesting because, yes, yeah, sadness... Um, Sadness and depression to me feel different. Sadness has movement, um, the movement of grief, the movement of tears. When you see children crying, um, they may be sobbing intensely one minute and then a couple minutes later they're back. Um, there's a, a process going on. It's a moving process in the body. And uh, that is a very different than depression which may be an absence of movement, an absence of um, processing. 
Um, in fact, when the person I was referring to early was able to start to access her feelings, disappointment, anger, rage, once she could really feel them as moving through her body, her depression lifted. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I actually talked to Joan Wittig about this a few episodes back. Um, mm. For anyone who's listening, I believe it's episode 12. And that's kind of what she was describing that, you know, with depression, anyone who's suffering from depression lacks the ability to find some kind of energy. Yes. So I was thinking with that example that you gave before, or even a different example, would you be able to describe, you know, a certain sequence of movements that may have happened in session with you? And then like what, what the immediate physiological response was. So like mm-hmm. I, I heard you say that the pushing, the pushing of the the patient before. Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead with a different example. Um, I had one person um, who was working on anxiety at work, even though she worked out in kind of a, a semi-public situation. She um, often had a lot of anxiety attached to that. And when it got very heightened, she would have certain uncontrollable symptoms that were very uncomfortable for her, one of which was that she would cough uncontrollably. And, you know, if she really couldn't talk, she'd have to retreat and, you know, recalibrate, et cetera. But it was pretty disruptive to her work um, environment. So when she came in, um, we she had never really worked with mindfulness before, but we brought her awareness to her breath. And we, um, you know, really followed the breath as it came in. She was able to allow herself to soften into the support of gravity as she breathed out. And then we we kind of did a little research project looking for the pause at the bottom of the breath. And then noticing from that pause where the breath starts. And when you notice that point of, the, in a sense, the origin of the breath, If you want to, you can do this along with us as we're talking about it. So breathing in, there's the expansion, breathing out, you can soften into the support of gravity. And there's a little pause there at the bottom of the breath. And right from that pause, you can notice as the next inhale comes in. And that origin um, involves your diaphragm which is exactly the part that was going into spasm for her when she was coughing. So she got kind of interested in that because she actually started coughing as she was talking about it. So then when we went through this cycle, she was able to drop down kind of underneath the spasm and allow it to soften and her her coughing dissipated. And it was partly because she wasn't in an anxiety-producing situation, right? But that was the first time that she'd ever been able to quote, stop her own cough. And she was kind of thrilled about that. Um, So we said, well, let's just kind of take that into the next week and research that a little bit. If it happens at work or, you know, outside of work, ideally, where it's not as stressful, just kind of see if you can notice that the bottom of the breath, the way we found it just now. And um, when she came in the next week, she was pretty thrilled because it had worked for her a few times. And um, she described it as having like a secret power. 
meaning that nobody could see what she was doing. And that was really important to her because it was more of an internal experience in this kind of uncomfortable uh, public situation. And so that's one example of being able to kind of bring your mind to your body and, and shift what's happening physiologically when it also may have an emotional component. So would you say that, um, I mean, that's, that's an amazing story, by the way. Um, that's really an, an awesome example. Um, would you say that her emotion of anxiety was taking place sort of like, do you feel like I'm trying to think of some words that might work? Like, was it stuck there? Um, was it just being held there in her diaphragm? Well, it's interesting in this example, which is kind of rare that um, we didn't go deeply into the emotions as much as we went deeply into the physiology so that she could kind of uh, create a sensory bypass um, because the emotions, the distress and the anxiety were just kind of looping around along with the uncontrollable coughing. And I've done this uh, something similar with my son who had um, some temporary tics um, when he was a child and he really hated it because it felt embarrassing to him that his face would, you know, move in ways that he didn't intend for. Um, so then what we would do is just kind of relax and begin to investigate and see if he could find a different uh, relationship to the sensation, like move it that same place intentionally, hold it for a second and then let it go. Or if it was happening in his um, face, what would happen if he actually focused on wiggling his toes instead? So basically you're creating a different sensory information for the brain. And then you're just giving it something else to, to do. Like you're giving the nervous system another pattern to engage in. Um, in those cases, I don't work directly with the emotion because um, it's almost like a, a physiological response um, that is not, may or may not be directly related to the distress. Like this would happen for my son when he got nervous, but if he was thinking about being nervous, the more nervous he would get, right? So you, you just have to give him a little bit of control over this situation and then start to explore a little bit more. Um, I think that's the cool thing about the body. It can kind of help you go into emotion, which is, I think, what you were getting at. And that's absolutely a wonderful resource. Um, you can feel whatever is going on for you more deeply. Once you begin to include um, the sensations of your body, there's many, many times I've worked with people who are um, having trouble accessing a feeling. And then as soon as they go towards um, their awareness of their bodies, they, they feel it very deeply. Um, and I think the power of um, sensory processing is you can also pull it the other way. If there's in a sense of flooding um, of feeling, and then there's a, there's a uncomfortable physiological response, you can almost train um, the nervous system to create another pathway as an option. So that's where I think the power of our work is so profound is that it's so nuanced and subtle. Um, it's not like an intervention can only do one thing. You can tailor it in a thousand different ways, depending on the particular context. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I'm thinking of, I see a lot of patients who will restlessly shake their leg. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, a lot of times this happens in a group, so there's not much room for exploring one-on-one, but, you Mm -hmm. know, they kind of say, oh, it's just something I do. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just a habit. But what do you think is happening physiologically Mm. Well, um, I'm, I'm thinking of that kind of, um, intense staccato type step, uh, nervous system response that I see a lot, um, in the legs. And if the person is interested, um, or I- even in a group, you might be able to bring that same pattern into another part of the body. For example, the arms, um, shaking, Um, shaking the shoulders, something like that, something that just kind of gives the brain a different um, way to experience the pattern Um, rather than maybe going directly to the legs and asking that to change, which you could also perhaps do after a warm-up by bringing in some kind of a movement metaphor that felt relevant that brought in a whole different quality, like what would happen if we were all walking through um, water right now so that there's a different kind of muscle tension that that invites. But I think it really depends as you um, are indicating on the circumstance, on the setting, on kind of what is anticipated uh, within the context and how much surprise you can bring into that system without it feeling disruptive. So there's so many factors, right? Um, that's why I guess it's called dance movement therapy because <laughs> we're always moving. And we, that's the, the thing I love about this field so much is how many different um, contexts we are effective in. Um, it's really something to think that the same essential protocol, which is just about helping people develop a more nuanced and flexible relationship with their own bodies can work pretty much across the developmental spectrum um, with any um, psychiatric challenge, with developmental challenges, um, cognitive challenges, um, and rehab. It's uh, medical issues. I mean, we all have bodies and we all, our struggles um, have an embodied manifestation. So, of course, it makes sense to begin there. Yeah, that's something that I wanted to bring up is I read in your article, you had talked about, I think, prenatally, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you talked about some processes prenatally that I believe was trying to indicate indicate that uh, our minds and our bodies, even before we're born, are kind of working together in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can clarify. Yes, When I think about prenatal development, it's kind of like being um, at the the first origins of the whole universe, right? The in nine months, six trillion cells, six trillion cells organize into our organs, our lungs, our brain, our heart, our skin. It's incredible that everybody finds their place and finds. an integrated relationship to each other cell in the body. The, the fact that that is successful so often and that it's in a sense an everyday occurrence, it, 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 we forget how miraculous it is. 
and it is completely an embodied phenomena. Um, and that's pre-birth, right? <laughs> and then we arrive and all of our growth from then on is um, in our embodied form, our embodied experience of the world. Um, all the information that comes to us from the world around us comes through our sense of it, our embodied experience. So we are held, we are talked to, we are fed. We, um, Our bodies amazingly know how to integrate what they're taking in from the milk or whatever our first fruit is, which is liquid, and sort it out into um, useful material and then let go of what it doesn't need anymore. I mean, all of these um, amazingly integrated uh, physiological phenomena are, you know, available to us. And from birth, we also begin to participate in our embodied experience of the world by, in the beginning, crying, um, by making it known when we have needs, how our needs are responded to, whether they are responded to, with what qualities of, of touch and care and sound uh, we are held in the world. All of these make a huge impact on what we begin to anticipate, how we anticipate the world meeting us, how we anticipate our own um, energy being responded to. Um, there are some very incredibly profound um, learnings that we're recording on multiple levels. We are um, Our memory systems are recording sensation they're recording um information they're, it's amazing how much you know it takes to be able to say stand up in the world literally stand up for the first time it takes so much work right at least nine months of work typically to um get a body that can then find its way to standing but then Almost, you know, every time after that, it becomes easier and easier and easier and easier. And all of a sudden we're doing this standing thing without even really thinking about it. You know, to that times, you know, an exponential amount is how much information, implicit information, meaning implicit is um, we don't have to pay conscious attention to it, but nevertheless is there um, as accessible information for us. So. We know how to stand. We know where to sit. Uh, we know how to hold a cup and bring it to our mouth. We know how to drive, many of us as adults. We learn that skill. And then as soon as we learn something and we don't have to pay as much attention to it, um, it is embodied knowledge, implicit knowledge. You know, that process is ongoing throughout life. We have access to new information also through our bodies, new experience, um, Somebody looks at us differently. Somebody experiences us differently. We then experience ourselves differently. That happens in therapy, in falling in love, in you know finding a new wonderful friend. We're constantly growing. And this growth is always through in new embodied interactions uh, with the world around us. Building on a foundation that's pretty solid by the time we're adults of embodied information that has preceded where we are now and becomes um, implicit 
less consciously available. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm, I'm thinking about uh, that example of standing up and they were carrying experiences from those very early moments mm. all the way to present day. Yes. And so would you say that, you know, based on what we were talking about earlier, how all of this is connected, we're carrying mm-hmm. emotions from, you know, our very, our first years of life? Sure. And um, those emotions kind of get translated into um, anticipations about, um, you know, will I be met with kindness? Um, is the world safe for me? Is it a place where I can be loud or ask for what I want? Or is it a place where I need to um, keep myself inside, not exposed too much? Um, Those are kind of profound questions about ways of being in the world that are actually have their templates in very, very early experience. And they change the way we are functioning inside, like our physiology our physiology, but and also how that's expressed in the world. So we may become um, hesitant people or very careful, both according to our temperament, but also how we are responded to when we do try something new. We may be, you know, highly activated and then uh, temperamentally, and then we either learn how to regulate that and, in a sense, Um, develop some confidence in our own ability to settle ourselves and then and then learn or uh, a tougher situation we may be negatively responded to for this very active self and um, not learn how to organize our own experience or how to settle in so um, that nervous system may uh, have mm, still to learn how to focus, for example, if you have um, adults who aren't really paying attention, because in a sense, the adults around a young child are helping that child learn how to be in the world, in their bodies, how to be in their own nervous systems. It is an incredible training period from a nervous system perspective, from from an embodied perspective. So what happens in early life? How a baby, how a young person is responded to by caregivers is setting quite a neurophysiological template for that young person. Um, I'm excited about a new film, The Moving Child, um, that is coming out in our field and um, really speaks to this in a beautiful way. Mm -hmm. Is there a way that people can see this movie? Yeah, um, it's available online um, now. You can download it for a one view or you can actually get, I think, a DVD version of it. A wonderful student of mine, Hannah Kamea Kemble, made this movie. And if you Google the moving child, you should be able to find it. So um, I'm getting that the parent or the caregiver trains the nervous system of the the child that they're caring for. And and that speaks to... Emotions, of course. Um, do you think that also, like, how does how does that form personality too? Is it in the movements? What do you believe that mm. kind of like forms the tiny? Thing? I think that's a, that's a wonderful question. I have been, I mean, from my experience, uh, children are born with an energetic um, temperament, and then um, how that temperament is um, 
experienced and uh, related to is what helps uh, shape kind of flexibility and the capacity to be in that body in an effective way in the world. So you might have a baby who's um, really loves stimulation. Um, I had one of each, so I, I really know what the difference is with the um, second one who was more extroverted, we couldn't go on an airplane without walking all up and down the aisles uh, face out so that he could say hello to 300 people. <laughs> he would be restless without all of that facial contact. It was literally the opposite from the first child who would have been just completely overstimulated by that same experience and was much happier kind of snuggling in, facing in. It got easily overstimulated. So like that primary difference between loving external stimulation or um, needing that to be very thoughtfully regulated. Um, babies come in with their own kind of styles and how the caregiver can help that baby. Um, you know, for example, for the more, um, internal one, um, begin to enjoy stimulation and enjoy engaging with the world in ways that feel manageable and, and rich. And, you know, then as the baby's ready, increasing that to maybe a little bit more or going outside, that kind of thing, versus um, the other one where you're also wanting them to have the capacity to self-soothe and kind of turn inward and tolerate being alone for a little bit every now and then or, you know, getting really engaged in something with themselves. So, yeah, I think it's a very um, kind of nuanced process. It's kind of dialectical, both within the self and in relationship. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I read that you wrote in your article was that our minds have the ability to disconnect from our bodies in the face of stress. Mm, yes. Yeah, I, I, I love the quote by Mabel Todd that says, um, man alone can be afraid all the time of what has happened, of what is happening, and of what may happen. He thus ignores the wise workings of the body. And that just, in a way, says it all. It's like, I think um, we have real vulnerabilities neurologically as a species, um, in a sense, because of our amazing intelligence, um, our left brains really have the capacity to travel forward and backward in time to do all of this incredible planning to do, you know, this, these abstract thinking is literally a disembodied neurological phenomenon. Our right brains are much, much more integrated neurologically through the body um, in a sense, they cannot become disembodied. And then we have this, so we have two simultaneous uh, ways of, of thinking and being and making sense of the world happening in our own brains at the same time. And then th those are bridged by the corpus callosum, who's in a way, a primary job is to kind of keep them separate rather than there's more GABA, which is kind of a slowing neurotransmitter in the corpus callosum, then there is glutamate, which would activate um, that flow of information. I think partly keeping our um, hemisphere separated is an important evolutionary function because our brains are so incredibly complex. We, we literally cannot pay every 
attention to everything at the same time. Um, however, <laughs> that also results in some vulnerabilities where we can just spend all day, you know, on the computer or planning and literally forget we have a body, but that has its own challenges, right? Then you really can become quite stressed out or over-anxious and you then need maybe some support in re-engaging the resource of the body, which you can do by bringing your awareness to it. And that's where we end up with embodied neurobiology back again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So do you have any suggestions or simple advice for people who are listening? Um, Like what's, what's the first step that someone can take alone Sure. It's becoming more One thing I like to do is just when I'm in that place of overthinking things, which it happens to all of us, um, I like to remind myself that, oh, my, my brain is a part of my body. <laughs> it actually has a weight and a shape. And if I bring my mind to it, I can imagine its um, existence within my skull And then I imagine that uh, my spine is a very long tail for my brain. And I might remember that uh, my brain is actually floating, which is true. There's a um, literal continuous flow of cerebral spinal fluid that helps to nourish our brains. It helps to um, cleanse our brains. It also helps um, our brains to literally float If you um, bring your spine to really nice balance, you can um, get to that place where your head feels kind of light. And that is the functional weight of the brain when it's in right relationship with the spine is just two ounces, light as a feather in a way. And um, at the same time, the literal weight of our brain, if you hang it forward, you can feel, wow, that is heavy. It is big. It is, um, you know, two to three pounds of weight. But because of this beautiful flow of cerebral spinal fluid that's cleansing and protecting and nourishing our brains, um, you know, and also keeping us afloat. Hmm. So that can be a nice um, little mini reminder to uh, to appreciate um the beauty of what's going on inside. Yeah, the visual of that was therapeutic in itself. Mm. And it made me think how much posture probably has such a, I know we, there's a lot of talk about this posture. And, yes. Um, but in that context, yeah. how posture can make you feel that much heavier or that mm. much lighter. Mm. And I, I yeah. kind of like, at least in my own experience and people that I've worked with is like, especially with depression, it feels heavy, mm-hmm. like a lack of energy, yes. a lethargy. Yes. You know. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that there's um, such incredible beauty in our physiology and the metaphors um, that come from that are also really lovely. I mean, the, the literal fact, but also the metaphoric um, sense that our that our, we have a little mini ocean inside our minds that's literally generated from the brain. The brain generates six ounces of cerebral spinal fluid, and then there's a continuous flow. So it, it, that is generated four times a day. So we've got like a little mini spring um, inside our own brains. 
and then I mean just just the complexity and the richness of what's already true and what's already going well inside our own bodies I think can be really nourishing for people and then can help support them to to return to their bodies as a place that feels um, kind of comforting and rich and and welcoming. Speaking of the flow, uh, the fluidity in the body, what about like shoulders are a kind of a popular area where things kind of feel stuck. It's common to hold a lot of tension in the shoulders. Yes, that is true. What's your take on that? Well, I like to remember that we actually are mostly water, um, literally about 78%, something like that. Mm -hmm. So if I start to imagine my whole body as a little bit of a water balloon, then I'm kind of can pour um, water from here to there to somewhere else, just kind of get spongy again. It can uh, really help me with some of that chronic tension. Nice. Those are some nice visuals. Yeah. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm glad I got to see you. Yeah, me too. This was really, really helpful. And uh, some complex ideas that you put in a very relatable way, in a way that mm. I think translates and can translate to, you know, a wide range of listeners. So, Absolutely. Well, thank you for your podcast and getting that word out there. Thank you. Thanks for contributing. All right. That was our 20th episode. Thank you again for listening. And to be entered into the free Octoban contest, visit www.mindyourbodydmt.com. Or if you're already a member of the Facebook page, the details will be right there too. This contest will be over on November 24th. So you have two weeks to enter. Good luck.